Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist, flautist, composer, arranger, and teacher, TK Blue. He's got a new album in the works, and he is always one busy cat. He has spent some quality time with Casey's very own Bobby Watson in the past. He grew up in the Bronx, and his parents are from Trinidad and Jamaica, and this is one well-educated man. Along with New York's Jazzmobile, he was a double major in music and psychology at New York University and got his master's in music education from Columbia University. Over the years, he has performed with many notable cats like the legendary Randy Weston, Jimmy Heath, and Abdullah Ibrahim. He spent a full decade in Paris and then came back to New York City, and he is a part of one big piece of the vibrant jazz mix going on in America these days. So get to know TK and dig this interview, my friends. Right on. Hey, thanks for taking some time out for me today. Oh, no, man. My pleasure, man. Anybody that knows Bobby Watson is family. i tell you what, man. He is, he is heralded a definite renaissance here in Kansas City, for sure. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, all these young cats coming out of his program are just blazing the scene out here, and it's a, it's the second coming in Kansas City. No, that's great. That's good. You know, I just got back from Detroit, and I see the same thing there as well. There's a lot of young musicians, man, on the scene. They're just they're just incredible. In fact, you know, the great trumpeter Marcus Belgrave, he had a, a huge impact in Detroit, the way Bobby has had in Kansas City. And I can see it, you know, because a lot of young kids came to the jam sessions and things. And, and I tell you, the future of jazz is very, very strong. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. No, no doubt. So let me go ahead and dive right in here and ask you, what, is, what has been going on with you lately? Well, um, like I just mentioned, I just got back uh, from the Detroit Jazz Festival with, with uh, Randy Weston, whom I've been uh, associated with him for well over 30 years now. I'm his musical director. And in fact, we have a new project that um, I'm the associate producer for called the African Nubian Suite, and uh, it'll be slated for official release in January. It's a double CD set, and it's really the whole history of African people starting in, in, in Nubia. And he's got uh, different vignettes of duos with, with different artists, a lot of great artists on the recording, including Candido, who's 95. You know, Randy and Candido have a long history of playing together, um, Billy Harper, Cecil Bridgewater, Lewis Nash, myself, Howard Johnson, Robert Trowers, uh, Neil Clark, a whole bunch of folks, Alex Blake, and also uh, musicians from different parts of the world. Uh, Kwaku from Nigeria, uh, he's playing balafone, Min Chao Fen, who plays the ancient uh, Chinese instrument called the pipa. She's on there, um, uh, another brother named Hassan from Morocco playing the hajuj. So you have a lot of uh, a lot of great things going on with that. I'm also preparing my new uh, recording, which will be my 11th CD as a leader, which will be slated for March uh, 2017 release, and it's called Amour. It's dedicated to the period of my life when I lived in Paris, most of the 80s. In fact, it's it's really nice because Bobby and I I knew Bobby, uh, I you know when I was in college in the late 70s, we we're around the same age. And I actually uh, met him first when he was with Art Blakey, but we really became close while I was living in Paris because he used to come over there quite a bit to perform. And, in fact, we actually did a tour together with Sam Rivers and uh, uh, Ten Saxophones 
called The Winds of Manhattan. Um, yeah, this is my new record. Like I said, it'll be out in March and uh, featuring uh, ATN Charles on trumpet and Warren Wolf on vibraphone and piano, as well as Zakai Curtis on piano, uh, Winnard Harper on drums, uh, Essie Essie on bass, uh, Gregoire Murray, great harmonica player. He, he and I work together a lot with Jimmy Scott, the late vocalist Jimmy Scott. He's on harmonica. Eric Kennedy on drums, uh, uh, Jeff Reed on bass. Yeah, a lot of folks, um, Roland Guerrero on percussion. So I'm really excited about that project, and I you know, wrote a lot of new pieces, and it's all reflections of my time in Paris, uh, Paris, France. So those are some of the things I'm involved in um, uh, on the immediate tip. you know. And I just finished a long stint. I was teaching for about seven years, a full-time professor at Long Island University, at the uh, Post Campus out in Long Island. So I was director of jazz studies. So I did that uh, for about seven years. But, you know, I tell you, teaching full-time, like I have to take my hat off to Bobby, and still maintaining your performance schedule is really tough, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. I You know, I was able to, you know, I had to make a lot of sacrifice. I mean, it was it was very hard, but I had to do it because I was determined not to let my playing go down. Quite often you get, you, you know, people when they go into the, uh, pedagogical feel, they relinquish a lot of their performance activities, and consequently, you know, their chops kind of go down, and I was determined not to do that. So even if it meant not sleeping, which I didn't sleep too much at all, because my philosophy would be to get to class. If I had a class like, like at noon, I'd get to the school at 9 and practice. Uh, you know, if I do the big band, which is great. I played a lot with my students in the big band and the small combos. So, you know, and then taking gigs, you know, working in town. I did some touring, uh, although I couldn't tour as long as I would like to when you're, when you're teaching full-time. Some, like I had something in South Africa. I could, I could only stay a couple of days because I had to get finals. I had an end-of-the-semester concert. But anyway, those things are over now. I'm not, I'm not teaching uh, full-time anymore just some private students, and um, just decided to concentrate on performing. And so um, that's pretty much where things at. Yeah, I spent most of the summer in Europe. I was in, uh, in July, I was in um, Switzerland uh, and France and Italy, did some performances over there. And, and I think coming up now in October, uh, I'll be going to Morocco with Randy. You know, Randy spent a lot of time in Morocco. In fact, he lived there for several years and had a club called the African Rhythms club so we, they've been honoring him recently we were in uh, Essaouira Morocco a few months ago where they honored him because this is his 90th year and then we're going to go back in October in fact just a footnote um, last Saturday we performed in Detroit with the Wayne State University big band we did uh, Randy was on piano and it was myself as a special guest and we did mostly Melba Liston arrangements but we did one of mine as well. Uh, I did an arrangement, a, a big band arrangement for a tune of his called African Village, Bedford Stuyvesant. We did that initially out in London with the BBC uh, Orchestra. Really nice. Um, and so on this particular performance last Saturday, we had the great Jimmy Heath. He was. It was the first time Jimmy played with Randy, believe it or wow. not. And they're both. Wow. Uh, Jimmy will be ninety in October. And Jimmy's wow. such a funny guy because everybody says, "Hey, we got two ninety-year-old guys playing together for the first time." And Jimmy would laugh and say, "Hey, my name is Jimmy Heath, not Jimmy Rushing, meaning don't rush me because my birthday is <laughs> not till October. So nice. I'm still eighty-nine. <laughs> so, you know, so he has such such great wit about him. But it was a it was very special for me 
because Randy, he's he's like a mentor and a, he's a father figure for many musicians. And Jimmy was my first really official jazz teacher. I met Jimmy when I was 18 in college. Uh, he was a teacher at Jazzmobile. And in fact, it was him who really got me into playing the alto saxophone and really checking out the folks that came before. You know, in high school, I was listening to Farrell Sanders, and then we got into Coltrane. But he went, he said, man, those guys are, are cool. In fact, he said, I, you know, he knew Coltrane uh, very well. They were, they were, they were compatriots in, in Philadelphia. But he said, you need to check out the folks before Train, like Charlie Parker and Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins, and the list is endless, and Dizzy. And so um, Jimmy was really instrumental in turning my whole life around musically. So I was really pleased to have him on my left side. We're playing High Fly, and Randy's on my right side on piano, so I'm right in the middle of two giants. Wow, that's great. Really, really special. So Yeah. yeah, that's some of the things I'm involved in now. Beautiful. Yeah, I've I've been fortunate enough to interview both of them, and they're both very beautiful souls. They've brought so much good to this world. And Uh i got to tell you, Randy, at one point during our interview, really explained jazz in a way that no one did. It was almost like the proverbial, like, velvet curtain was parted for me. He said, Joe, you got to understand something. I've been to the African continent so much that swing was brought over. Everything in Africa swings. And when it came here, he just... The way Randy said that to me, it, it, it's still to this day, man, it raises hair on my back, my neck. Yeah. I was like, my God, dude, he totally explained the right. beginnings of that art form for me in a way that I visually got it. And it's no just, doubt. Wow. You know, and no just the way, the way he rolls, the way he talks, and the way he appreciates being alive on this planet, I, I, it's part him, but it's part... When you get to be 90 and you live that rich existence like he has, it's like, right. wow. Right. Just to be, be around that. So when you explained that you were between those two men, wow, yeah. the energy yeah. on that stage had to be intense. <laughs> no, That's it was. Awesome. Yeah, no, and, he, and he, he, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because so, so often, Joe, it's unfortunate that the African elements of jazz you know, get lost, get kind of obscured, downplayed, not given the credit that it deserves. And, you know, a lot of times the powers that be will give more praise to musical genres that are more intellectual, maybe more on the avant-garde tip and uh, not so much in, in a groove, so so to speak. And it's it's unfortunate because the African element is so... Uh, important when you talk about jazz and when you talk about samba and when you talk about bossa nova and when you talk about reggae and yeah. the list is endless you know that and 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 like Randy I've been fortunate to to travel quite a bit in Africa I, in fact when I lived in Paris um I did a recording called Egyptian Oasis which was my first record as a leader and that recording caught the interest of folks at the US embassy in Paris and they proposed me to do several USIA State Department tours in Africa. They felt the music I was playing would be perfect. And I started in 1989, and I went to 10 countries in East Africa, starting in Ethiopia, Burundi, Rwanda, Uganda, working our way all the way down to Madagascar was the last stop. And then the following year, 1990, we were invited to go back, and this time to West Africa, where we started in Mali, and went through, you know, all the way down uh, Burkina Faso, Sierra Leone, 
Togo, Benin, Gabon, Cameroon. We worked our way down that way. So I, I also witnessed, like Randy, a lot of uh, the origins, a lot of the elements. I heard music in Mozambique that reminded me of some of that early marching band funeral tradition in New Orleans. I heard music yeah. uh, that, 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 that heard those samba rhythms, in, you know, in Angola, Mozambique. I heard some stuff that reminded me of reggae in West Africa. You know, so you 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 get that the beginnings of a lot of uh, musics that we hear across the planet. And uh, so he's right. You know, the the continent was swinging. And see, it's interesting because jazz, as we know, was born in the United States. An interesting aspect of that is that during the time of slavery, slavery had different forms in different parts of the world. Now, in the States, unfortunately, the instruments were not allowed for the slaves. There were instances where perhaps a drum might have been able to, to be played here and there, but for the most part, slaves were not allowed to play any instrument, except those who played a Western instrument where they would be hired out to to perform for functions at the different plantations. Like in the case of Solomon Northup in his book, Twelve Years a Slave, he played violin. He was hired out by the master to play. But for the most part, they weren't allowed to play the instruments. Whereas you go to other, other cultures where slavery was uh, was prevalent, that, that wasn't the case. That's why in, in Haiti and Cuba and Brazil, you have such strong African retention in their music because those slaves were allowed to play their instruments and yeah. they were able to develop instruments. So it's really interesting when you look at the from a historical perspective. Yet, even though here they weren't allowed to play the instruments, they had the music, they were still swinging inside. You know, it's like yeah. if somebody takes takes my saxophone away, uh, I can still tap my, my chest, I can still sing, I can still pat my pat my legs and I can dance and I can I mean the music you can't take the music from my heart. You may yeah. take the, the physical instrument. So so that that retention was strong and I think then when they had an opportunity to really expound on um the uh, correlation and the collaboration with instruments here. So you get places like Congo Square developed in New Orleans, where now, this, the, 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 during that time, they were allowed to play the drum. And then you had the, the Creoles, the mix of, of African and European ancestry, playing European instruments. We get this new thing coming on the scene, and then we have jazz. So it's really interesting. So that, that African element is very, very strong, and should be really given credit. And I think that's predominantly what, what uh, Randy proposes and what he talks about a lot, is you can't, you can't downplay the African element. It's very, very important. And the other thing is uh, that he grew up in an era, Joe, that you and I have no conception about. I can't even picture playing somewhere and then being told I can't eat or I can't yeah. sleep here. I can't, I can't even fathom that. Or going to a movie theater, have to sit up in the balcony. Yeah. Or, or seeing films that um, depict uh, African and black people in very derogatory fashion. I can't fathom that, but he went through that. He literally went through that. He had he toured in the South. He told me about tours he did with this guy, Boo Moose Jackson, when he toured in the South. And, it was, you know, they had, had, you know, it was rough. They had to, you know, they couldn't eat in just any place. They had to really be careful where they, where they went, things like that. So I think it also is a strong indication why he's very strong on, 
emphasizing the African element, which is such a positive element. And the other thing to off from that would be if a lot of young folks, especially young African Americans, if they were to know their culture and their history and how rich it is and how great it is, then maybe they wouldn't make that choice to join a gang or to or to take drugs or to do very negative things, you know, if yeah. they really knew of their history. So there's a lot of great things when you know your history because, you know, because for a lot of African Americans, unfortunately, they think their history started with slavery. <laughs> and it goes way beyond slave before slavery. You yeah. know, you got to go back thousands and thousands of years. So I, I think that's one of the things where Randy's coming from is why he talks about about Africa and African culture quite a bit and why he's so attracted like myself you know um my ancestry is from jamaica and trinidad and you know they had a rich uh tradition there of slavery and of african uh, elements in their music you know in both cultures yeah i'm the same I, i'm very attracted to finding out more and more and more that i can about i in fact i got some books now on on egyptian music ancient egyptian music going back 2,000 years, and, and even the whole concept. Now, now this is blowing my mind because I'm, I, I was under the impression the whole concept of diatonic scale, uh, the tempered diatonic scale, was uh, indicative to Western musical culture. But then I'm finding out that this diatonic scale was used in Egypt, you know, two 3,000 years ago. Wow. Like, oh, and they had, and each note had a different representation with the line with the planets, each day of the week, things like that. But they had a a diatonic scale that was identical to the, the do re mi fa so la, la ti do that we that we associate in the West. So it's really interesting. It's just fascinating for me finding these things out, you know, and how it um, correlates to today and in, in, in our uh, study of music. That's deep, man. That's very cool. Yeah, I had no idea either. So going back in history. Speaking of, let's go back in your life, your childhood mm-hmm. in the Bronx, and you, as you mentioned, your folks were from Trinidad and Jamaica. What was it about your upbringing that got you so interested in music, and more specifically, jazz? Well, um, my mom, well, you know, we, had, we listened to a lot of music around the house. Um, you know, of course, we had stuff from Trinidad, the soca and Calypso, and then we had uh, some artists from, from Jamaica, but mom also had uh, some Louis Armstrong records, and that was my first introduction to jazz i mean hearing these records and in fact when i was eight years old i i i wanted to play the trumpet because i was i just louis just looked so cool on the cover of this record holding this trumpet and that handkerchief you know and by the way you know a lot of people will say why do he, he always had that handkerchief you know you see these old photos of him with the handkerchief and you know believe it or not yes yeah, some of it was to wipe the sweat from his brow but also back in those days he, he had louis used a lot of trick fingering and he didn't want nobody to steal his fingers, so sometimes he'd put that handkerchief over his fingers <laughs> when he was playing, so you couldn't see it. He had a lot of trick fingering. Yeah, I, I started playing trumpet uh, for 8 to 10, and then I, then I got into sports and stuff, and I kind of put music on the back burner. But when I got in high school, I, I, I got back into playing the flute. I grew up mostly listening to Motown. R&B, and James Brown was a huge influence because, uh, in fact, I remember cutting school in high school to go see him at the Apollo. And back in those days, those artists would play like seven, eight shows a day. You know, they would alternate with a film. So I went to the Apollo many times as a teenager to see James Brown, see The Temptations, 
you know, the, the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And James Brown, you know, he had a great horn section. Pee Wee Ellis, Maceo um, Parker. So those cats were really uh, influential for me. So when I got in high school, I started playing flute and then uh, and clarinet. And then in, in college, the great thing, just the fate would have it, was, you know, I was in a dormitory in college at NYU, and the guy next door to me was a senior. I was a freshman, and he was a John Coltrane fanatic. In fact, he had every Coltrane record uh, to, that had been released to that date. Everything was in pristine plastic covers. He wore white gloves. He had a top-of-the-line stereo system. You couldn't touch his records or his stereo system. Mm. Off limits. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he, and, and he, he dibbled and dabbled with... Um, Saxophone. He played a little tenor and, and alto. David Anthony, very good, a good friend of mine. He's actually a professor now at, out in California, I think at San Jose State. And so he, he, you know, turned me on a lot to train. So I started listening to Coltrane. In fact, you know, my favorite things, things that he did on soprano really caught my attention. Um, Afro Blue, Softly in the Morning Sunrise, uh, Shim Shim Cherie. Those things really caught my attention. So I went immediately and got a soprano. So when I met Jimmy Heath at Jazzmobile, I was playing flute, uh, soprano, little clarinet, and uh, Jimmy said, "Man, listen, man, you gotta, you gotta check out the cast before you." And then he said, "Like Charlie Parker," and I said, "Well, who is he?" And so Jimmy said, "Well, come to my house after class today." So I went to Queens with him, and he showed me this picture on his wall, which had uh, him directing a big band. And the, my idol, John Coltrane, was sitting in the sax section, smoking a cigarette, looking at this guy in utter amazement, taking a solo. And the guy taking the solo was Bird. And so Jimmy said, that's who Charlie Park is. So when I saw the way my idol was in awe of this guy, I said, man, I need to check him out. And then Jimmy proceeded to play um, doodle 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 pop pop uh, Red Cross, and Show Nuff. And all these, these these recordings, and when I heard that alto, I just freaked out, man. And uh, on my way home that day, because I, I was living, by that time I moved off campus, and I had an apartment in, in the East Village, and there was a music store on the corner of 4th Street and 2nd Avenue, and they had an alto saxophone in the window for sale. And it was a vintage horn. It was a Selma, I believe it was a cigar cutter. And I copped right away. And, you know, the rest is history. So I started, because Jimmy explained to me, too, the way it works. He said, man, um, you know, cats are not going to call you for flute or soprano. They usually call an alto or tenor player who doubles. That way they can get a guy that can play those instruments. So you got to play tenor or alto as a main axe, and then you double on flute and soprano. So I followed his advice, and it was very well taken because, you know, you make yourself more available for work when you're playing one of those instruments. And then luckily growing up, uh, again, going back to your question, uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in Long Island. I was born in the Bronx, but we actually grew up in Long Island. And lucky for me in the town I grew up in, Lakeview, right down the street, were three people that were very influential when I was growing up for my jazz education. One was a tap dancer named Conrad Buckner, Little Buck, and he listened to jazz exclusively. And he was also close with Milt Jackson, who lived in Queens, 
And Milt's brother, in particular, Alvin Jackson, who was a great bass player, but a lot of people don't realize he was a great bass player. So I met those guys, and also through Buck, I met Eddie Jefferson, because Eddie was a tap dancer, and they, he and Buck they went back to the, to the Kansas City, Detroit days. Eddie was from Detroit, and so I met Eddie, and then Eddie introduced me to got me a flute lesson with James Moody, which was fantastic. And then also down the street was another gentleman named Roger Lewis. He took me under under his wing because I, I grew up without a father. My dad split when I was ten. And uh, so, you know, he gave me a lot of guidance, and he also was a big jazz fanatic. And then across the street from him was a great tenor saxophone player from Detroit named Billy Mitchell, who who came to fame playing with the small groups of Thad Jones and also with Count Basie and also with Dizzy. So all of those cats really gave me a great education in listening to jazz and, and broadening my horizon. Uh, but it wasn't until I really met Jimmy Heath that... Um, I really then started going all the way back, starting with Hawk, you know, and 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 Lester and all of those cats, you know. Um, so that's kind of where where things went. And then, um, you know, with Bird, of course, with the alto, uh, that was it in Cannonball and and Sonny Stitt. And I had opportunities. Funny, while I was at NYU, when I started playing saxophone, I think my senior year, I was walking in the village, and and this, this guy said, "Hey, man, come over here." What you got in that case? And I says, Alto. He said, well, come on inside here. It was a club, and it was Sonny Stitt. And he, he took me in the club, and he started giving me a lesson right on the spot. He said, man, what's, wow. a, whole, what's a whole note? I said, well, a whole note gets four beats. He said, I didn't ask you how many beats it gets. What is it? I, I said, well, I don't know. He said, it's a round circle. How many keys on the saxophone? I didn't know. How many keys on the piano? I said, oh, 88. How many black keys? Uh, I didn't know that. It's 36 now, but I didn't know that back then. And he made me take my horn out and uh, made me play. Of course, I mean, I couldn't play anything near even adequate to even be on the stage with Sonny Stitt. But it was education for me. He made me play. He just made me, you know, just take a chorus. Eddie Jefferson did the same thing. He, you know, he played at Tim Palace. He had Johnny Coles, Reggie Workman, a whole bunch of heavyweights. He said, man, come on up and play. It was a funny story because he told me, come on up and play, do a blues. And he said to me, take one chorus. Because, you know, I couldn't play that well. So he said, take one chorus. And I took one chorus, and then I tried to go for the second chorus, and he slapped slapped me up right upside my head so hard. You know, I had a, I had an afro, and his his handprint was left in my <laughs> his handprint was left on top of my head. And he said, he said, man, can't you count? But those those are the education. That was the education that I that I had. They really nurtured me, and and lucky. You know, it's really funny how fate would have it, because. In high school as a senior, I was very good academically, and I also played sports. So I, I was uh, very attractive for many schools. In fact, I had a full scholarship to Boston University, which is where I wanted to go. And uh, at that time, even though I was playing flute and clarinet, I wasn't really sure I wanted to be a musician. In fact, I, I was thinking of being more a uh, doctor. I wanted to go pre-med. And my guidance counselor at the time, who was white, didn't think that was a good idea. She actually said, you know, you should be more realistic. And this, again, you know, you're talking 71, 72, you know, uh, uh, vestiges of discrimination. And she was like, you know, you should, you should be more practical. You should think about 
occupation or profession that's more within your grasp, like plumbing, elect- electrician, things like that, carpentry. And it really turned me off. But I said, no, I'm determined. No, I want to be a doctor. And she said, well, okay. And she said, I'll take care of it. She took the letter that I received from Boston stating I had a full scholarship, and she never responded to them. And as a consequence, I lost that scholarship. I got a letter a month later saying, we have not heard from you by by this date, and we've this, we we assume you've chosen another school, therefore we've rescinded our offer. And of course, you know, my mom was furious. We went up to the school and the principal, everybody they're on the phone trying to get this scholar and they they did they just said no good. But but fate would have it because I applied as backup to NYU and Syracuse and both of them gave me full scholarships. So I went to to NYU. And that for me was what was the best move because being in New York City I was able to hook up with Jimmy Heath and there were also many other institutions in the 70s where you could study jazz for free. Besides Jazzmobile, which had Jimmy Heath, Frank Foster, Ernie Wilkins, Chris Woods, um, Thad would come up there periodically, uh, Billy Taylor, um, so many people, Sonny Red, uh, Benny Powell, um, oh, the list is endless, Freddie Waite teaching drums, Lyle Atkinson teaching bass, then you had the Henry Street Settlement that Paul West, the great bass player, he actually started Jazzmobile, and then he, he decided to leave and start another institution called the Henry Street Settlement. And there I studied with him and Billy Mitchell, the saxophonist who I grew up with in Long Island. He taught there. And then they had another institution on, on another day called Jazz Interactions. And there you ha- I studied with Joe Newman, and, and my flute teacher was Rossard Roland Kirk. So I was in some really heavy company. And yeah. when Rasan couldn't make the class, he, he would send in a sub. And you know who his sub was? It was Youssef Latif. Wow. Yeah, so it was pretty awesome. And then Brooklyn had a place called The Muse, and that was run by Reggie Workman, also Kenny Barron, and Bill Barron, Kenny's brother, who played a great saxophone player. They they used to teach there. So So being in New York in the 70s, was really a fantastic situation because you could study at all of these places with the top of the top of the top. I mean, you can't get no 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 higher than Frank Foster, Jimmy Heath, and these guys. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. It was just incredible. So, so in a way, you know, out of adversity, something good happened. So, losing that scholarship uh, to Boston enabled me to be in New York. Who knows? Had I gone to Boston, maybe I'd be. We wouldn't even be talking on the phone now. Maybe I'd be performing surgery somewhere <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah. one other thing that happened in the 70s from 77 to 80 is uh abdul ibrahim you played in dollar brand what was uh-huh. that experience like yeah that was very that was really my first uh official major gig and i and i met him through uh another south african musician that that i started playing with while right when i was graduating from college named indico ngaba xaba indico is a you know he's back in South Africa now. He came over in the sixties with a theater group, and then he stayed because of the uh, apartheid. He decided he didn't want to go back, and he played a lot of instruments: piano, uh, percussion instruments. He used to make even African instruments, and he introduced me to um, 
at that time he was known as a dollar brand. He was actually segueing into using Abdullah Ibrahim. He actually had both names on many of the marquees. And he and I kind of hit it off really well. And he saw that I was a, you know, I had promise as a musician and I was uh, studious and very open to learn. And so he took a shot and gave me a shot. And I'm really indebted to him to this day for having done that. So in 1977, he had a, a big concert. Uh, at uh, Alice Tully Hall, and he hired me to play uh, in the band, which also featured people like Hamiet Blewett and Carlos Ward, John Betch, a great South African bass player, Johnny Diani, some South African dancers, uh, Roy Brooks on drums as well, um, Claude Latif on percussion. And then the next day, the very next day, we went into the studio, and that was the first recording that I, I'm ever on as a musician uh, called uh, The Journey. And, and and believe it or not, I was playing on that recording besides uh, flute, soprano, and alto, oboe, because I started uh, messing with the oboe while I was in college as well. Youssef Latif, as I mentioned, was a sub for Rasson, and he was a big influence on me because Youssef had all those recordings, and I loved his sound on oboe and, and on flute. So for a hot minute, I, I no longer play oboe, but I, I studied the oboe and, and actually got it to a level where I could perform with it. And uh, this one tune called The Journey, Abdullah loved the sound of the oboe on the melody, so I played on my first recording, oboe. And so, and then we did some European tours. That was the first time I went to Europe was with Abdullah. Um, so, yeah, we and then we did some other recordings as well. We recorded in Germany a record called Africa Tears and Laughter, and then there was another record called South African Freedom Songs. And with Abdullah, I also had an opportunity to perform with his wife, uh, who, who died uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Satima B. Benjamin. And also with Abdullah in Germany, we, we did a concert with Marion Makiba, which was absolutely fantastic. I have a lot of respect and admiration for Abdullah Ibrahim, and uh, you know, I just I, I'm always, I will always be indebted to him for having given me an opportunity to travel and after and after going to Europe with him was when I, I, I decided I came back to the States and I, I went back to school and got my masters uh, my mom always would tell me listen get that paper you never know when you're gonna need it and God bless her she was right because I've gotten many teaching gigs that I would not have gotten had I not had a masters so I went yeah. back to uh, Columbia I got my masters and after that I decided I, I wanted to change the scene and I and I decided to to move to Europe. And I initially stayed with friends that I met through Abdullah in Switzerland, uh, Six and Renata Trout, very beautiful folks who have a house in the country uh, outside of uh, Zurich, uh, Solothurn. They actually uh, have a big performance space in their house with piano and rhythm section, with drums and bass, and they actually would have concerts at their place. And so I wound up staying there for a couple of months, and then. I went to Paris, and I really loved the, the Paris, Paris being such a cosmopolitan place. You have so many nationalities of people there. And so what turned into be a couple of weeks in Paris turned into almost 10 years. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's kind of, um, you know, how that went down. Uh, and then Paris was great because I had an opportunity to, uh, as I mentioned, uh, play with Sam Rivers, uh, which that group which featured Bobby Watson, Steve Coleman, and um, also, I did some things with Archie Shep, with the uh, Brotherhood of Breath, Chris McGregor, a great pianist uh, from South Africa, who was also exiled. 
and then I worked with groups like African groups, uh, with like a group named Halam, and we did uh, some recordings, and we also played for a big major film called Marshall Lombra, which was produced by Michel Blanc. Uh, but then I had an opportunity to play with many, many artists. And the thing with Paris that was very appealing to me as a musician, because my, my musical focus is still very, very diverse. Uh, of course, jazz is 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 very dominant, but I, I I also listen to a lot of Brazilian music and African music. I love R and B. So in Paris, I was working with groups from all those genres, and it was it was fabulous. Unfortunately, sometimes in the states, especially in New York, things can be pretty departmentalized, so to speak. Whereas if you're seen playing with a funk band. You know, a jazz guy may not call you, even though he may like your sound, but he may think that your head is just into funk. If you're seen playing with an avant-garde, free jazz band, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a band playing, say, uh, like like Art Blakey, they may not call you because they think that you're just playing in that genre. But whereas in Paris, you could cross all of these boundaries. I've had people who would hear me play in one uh, situation, uh, maybe with a Latin group, and they'd call me to do some rock, and then uh, some African music, and, you know, Brazilian music. So it was really nice. I like that kind of openness over there in, in that regard, you know. Yeah, so what brought you back to the States? Why why didn't you stay over there? Um, well, a lot of things. You know, family predominantly, you know, um, and also, you know, New York, one of the things about New York that's always been so attracting is that, first of all, it's a, Mecca for the the best of the best. You 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 have so many great musicians throughout the years that come going back to when Bird came to New York in the forties that come to New York, and so what, consequently it raises your level because here when you go to a jam session you can you can be rest assured. There are going to be at least 20 cats that can play as good or better than you at that session. Yeah. So you got to come with your A game. And then that became a huge attraction. Paris, although it was very nice and I had a lot of great time and experience playing there, you didn't have the quantity of great artists that you have in New York. It's just a realization. In Paris, you, you know, during that time period, when you get a gig, you know, you had. Limited choices on each instrument. You know, you, you, maybe there'd be three, four, five guys on bass, drums, or piano that you could call that you know could play your music. Now, after that, the level starts going a little bit down. But New York, you don't have that. You can go down. I mean, I had a gig one time. Yeah, I went down a list. Uh, maybe the 20 or 25th cat that I call was available, and, the, and, and he was like a super, super heavy musician so that was a big attraction for me at that time i felt the need to come back and get back into the fire so to speak and then also like i mentioned i have family have a daughter and and stuff so you know i wanted to get back and, and be be with my family as well so there was those two things and then also it, on my travels back I, I wound up meeting a young lady that I actually went to high school with and we wound up dating and we eventually got married and we're still together today celebrating I think this year will be our 20 well this year we had our 27th anniversary so 
all of those factors kind of drove me back uh, to live back in the States, you know. Beautiful. And, you know, you've had such a long, full career in music, so I'm going to ask you this. Why do you love jazz? Well, for a number of reasons. One, it's a very democratic music. Everybody in the group, regardless of their race, their age, their sex, their genre, their religion, everybody is equal. Everybody has an opportunity to first make a statement as a unit. There's your melody. Then everybody has an opportunity to make their individual statement. There's your solo improvisation. So it, it, to me, it's, it's a beautiful thing because, A, it brings people together from all different nationalities and genres for a common goal to make some beautiful music that uplifts people. Everybody has an opportunity to make a statement, to give their point of view, to tell their story. And it's a genre that crosses languages. So consequently, I was in groups in Paris. When I first got there, I didn't speak French. I speak French now. I learned it while I was there. But when I initially got there, I didn't speak French. So I played in groups where, where it was difficult for us to even talk because it was a Japanese. This one group I played, the guy was from Japan. He just arrived. He only spoke Japanese. played trumpet. You know, French guy playing an instrument. I'm playing saxophone. Maybe a guy from Africa, you know, only North Africa maybe spoke Arabic, not that much French. But we were all able to communicate musically. So, so that's my attraction to jazz. And then also it's a form of, of emotional um, expression that allows you to really del delve deep down into the innermost being of your psyche and express those inner feelings through a composition or through a solo. You can evoke memories very easily through jazz, people that I that have helped me in my life or maybe who have passed on or made their transition, I can play a song and I can remember that person through that music. I can feel their vibration. I can feel like they're right there next to me in the room. And uh, I haven't found that with a lot of other styles of music the way I do with jazz. And then also it's such a wide open canvas because when for me when i say jazz i don't necessarily just think of a four four swing um i mean that's also a big part of it but i'm thinking there's so many different rhythmic elements that you can use harmonic elements melodic elements on my new recording this i mean i have one tune it's called abdullah prosper dedicated to the young brother uh, from Halam, that group I played with in Paris, who died. He was the leader of the band, played drums, but he died very young from a rare form of cancer. I wrote a song for him. On that particular piece, I'm playing uh, three different type of kalimbas, a lukembi, an ambira, and a sanza. And then I have percussion and turtle shells and, and different percussion, uh, bongos, kungas, and bass, and then flute, soprano. So... For me, the, the umbrella of jazz is is a wide-open canvas, um, probably one of the most wide-open canvases of all styles of music because you can really go in so many different directions when you really think about it as opposed to other genres uh, where you, you're kind of following a certain format. 
What's one of the nicest things that a fan has ever said to you about your music? Oh, man, that's a good one. I mean, so many things. But I think the, 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 the greatest thing that someone can tell you is that you made them feel better. Like, like man, I, you know, after hearing this show, I feel good. I feel better than I felt before I came today. That's probably one of the greatest things that I can think of. I, I would say probably one of the, if you had to pinpoint me down to one of the greatest experiences ever in my life, barring none, would probably be when Benny Powell, the trombone player, who was like a father and mentor for me, we played together so long. When he died in, in 2010, and I did a concert in Baltimore, and, it, and I dedicated it to him. And we played one set, and we had to do a second set. And, it, and the first song on the second set, I played this tune of mine that Benny really loved. He loved it so much that he wrote a, his own trombone part for it. And when I played this tune, it was such magic in the air. I can't even describe it. I just felt this warm vibration come down into the room. And the next thing I know, when I played the last note, the people just stood up, everybody, and started clapping. And I started crying, and I couldn't stop crying. In fact, I couldn't play anymore. And I told the club, the, the owner, listen, don't pay me. I'll just pay the band out of my pocket. Uh, if anybody wants their money back, give it to them because I can't play anymore. I, 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 I can't. It's just, uh, the you know, and, and everybody, so I looked in the audience and people were crying and they felt my spirit. They felt Benny's spirit. The club owner said, no way, you know, you're you going to get paid. And everybody said, listen, it's good. We're cool. We don't need to hear any more music. <laughs> you know, so these are things like that uh, that, that you know, stays in my memory. Uh, and I'll always remember that. And the, and the interesting thing about that concert is I normally tape most of my shows. And for some reason, I didn't have my machine to tape that particular show. And it's just as well because that show wasn't supposed to be uh, listen to again. Yeah. That was the one-time experience. But I think uh, going back is is when people say to you after hearing you, man, you you know, uh, not not so much that you sound great. I mean, that's fine too. I mean, no, all musicians appreciate when somebody says, "Hey, man, you sound great, you sound fantastic." But I appreciate more than that when somebody tells me, "Man, I feel better than I felt before I came." That's what I like. Yeah. That means I've I've uplifted them. I've given them something. It's like Art Blakey had that expression: "Jazz washes off the dust of everyday life." Yeah. You know. So that would be my my answer. Right on. Mm -hmm. So so this next question is going to be about perception. You know, everybody has a perception of who you are: your family, your mm -hmm. friends, your business associates. But when you wake up in the morning and you face the world, who do you think you are? I just feel like I'm uh, I'm still a student because the T for TK Blue stands for Talib, and Talib means student, and Keyboy K stands for Keyboy, which which is blessed, and I, I feel blessed every day when I wake up. I feel like I'm still a student, and I feel like I I go into the day praying that I will learn something today that will 
uh, enrich my life and also praying that somehow I can do something today that will benefit somebody else. I kind of try to not look at myself as a great musician or anything on that level. I'm still striving to be a great musician, and I have a long way to go because there's so many artists that I admire so much. And so I'm just a sponge. And the the other thing is I'm thankful. Every day I wake up, I, I, I make prayers, and I thank the Creator for giving me another opportunity to work on this planet and maybe to do something positive to help somebody. So I'm really thankful and appreciative for the opportunity. That's a fitting way to wrap it up. Thank you for opening up with me today and for your time, and most certainly for all the music. Thank you so much, Joe. God bless you. Have a wonderful day, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest and coolest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to TK for his cool, all of those stories, and the great music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the Neon Jazz YouTube channel. And for everything Neon Jazz, you can go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.